Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 9, where we're going to be looking at verses 46 through 50. Recently, the elders had one of what is reasonably called a brainstorming meeting. Um, We have so much business to do on our big elder meetings once a month that we've been having extra elder meetings just to brainstorm. Uh, That's what Pastor Tim Carnes calls it. And uh, he selects some different topics that we can talk about. And then we go ahead and just, you know, talk about them, how we can do things better and, um, you know, just this ministry stuff so we can better honor the Lord. And recently we talked about our perception in Burbank, how do other churches, you know, perceive us and and we pretty much agreed that people see us as the Bible thumper church. And um and we kind of like that, you know, that's uh that's an okay perception. Um and uh others though perceive us as kind of um, dogmatic and inflexible and intolerant and condemning, things like that. And uh, most of that's directed at me because I'm the kind of the voice here. Um, and so anyways, we talked about that and just, you know, why this is. Uh, some people, you know who have left, came and visited or whatever, and they, you know, don't want to part with their sins or whatever, and so we're the bad guy or whatever. But, you know, some of it we we have to take responsibility for um, because sometimes when God gives you great blessings, you can think that you're special because he's given you something. um, Therefore, you're great. You know, we're the church that preaches the word and we're the church that has a lot of programs and, and, you know, things are happening here. And you know what? They are, you know, I think we are preaching the word and I think we're doing a good job at teaching. I think people are growing in the Lord and growing in discernment and coming to the Lord. All those things are happening. God's blessing this church in huge ways, but it's not an excuse to look down on others who aren't being blessed like God is blessing us. You know, with great blessing comes great responsibility. And so the elders discussed how we can take our great blessing, instead of using it to sin with, how we can use to encourage others and build others up and and just better honor the Lord with what he's doing among us. Well, this morning in our text... And Lord willing, next week, we're going to be looking at the sin of pride and especially in the area of kind of spiritual eliteness. And we're going to see this. Uh, if you remember, um, just we've said this over and over in the last part of chapter nine, Luke finishes up what is called Jesus's Galilean ministry. That is his ministry in the area up and around the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is going to be heading south towards Jerusalem where he's going to die. And these last few examples Luke gives are all bad. They're all kind of four, five, six negative examples of what the disciples did wrong right before they left Galilee to go towards Jerusalem. So in one way, it's kind of a downer section because they're messed up and Luke's letting us know they're messed up. And the other part, it's good because we get to learn from their mistakes so that we don't do the same thing. And as we uh, left last week, they had just healed the demon-possessed boy. Jesus told them he was going to die. They didn't understand the statement. And then Mark, in his account, his parallel account in Mark 9.33, Mark tells us that then Jesus and the disciples traveled to Capernaum. And if you... uh, know the geography of Israel a little bit, you probably know that just uh, east of Jerusalem, down into the Jordan Roof is the Dead Sea. And uh, then there's a little river that goes straight up from the Dead Sea, and that is the Jordan River, and it comes out of the Sea of Galilee. And then uh, into the Sea of Galilee, the same river flows, and uh, just right towards the top, well, to the west of that is the 
or when you look at the map to the left, it's, I'm doing it that way to you guys. Um, uh, to the west of that, uh, is the first town you come to is Capernaum. And that was kind of one of Jesus' bases of operation. So they've, they've traveled to Capernaum and Mark tells us that the disciples got to the house there where they were staying and Jesus then enters in. And this is what he says. And when he, Jesus, was in the house, he began to question them. And he asked this. What are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Now think about that. These guys are the disciples, man. The whole church is going to be built off of their teaching. And along the way, Peter says to the nine, man, you guys should have been up there on the mountain. It was awesome. But of course, you weren't invited. (laughs) And then they're walking along a little bit. Yeah, you know, you guys don't get to... See, a lot of the things that we get to see, you know, James and John and I. And you know, when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, I imagine that, you know, we're going to have a little bit higher places than you guys. And then the nine say, are you trying to tell us that you're better than us? Because Jesus has taken you along. You've got to experience things that we haven't got to experience. Peter kind of looks at James and looks at John says, well, it's obvious we are his favorites. (laughs) And then this argument ensues. Oh, yeah, but I was with him. Oh, yeah, well, Jesus had this private conversation. Well, I was was the only one who got to see this miracle. And so they start boasting. They start talking about which of them is the greatest. It just seems almost impossible. But whatever the conversation was like, one thing we know they were arguing about who was the greatest. So keep that in mind and let's look at our text. Luke chapter 9 verse 46 and follow along as I read through verse 50. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him. For he who is not against you is for you. Now, when you look at this text, you may think, well, maybe 49 and 50 should be a different sermon. No, it fits. Even more fits, but I couldn't fit it in. Um, <laughs> just from this section, this section alone, you're going to learn three lessons about greatness. And these are lessons you need to learn if you want to be great in God's sight, not the world's sight. And the first is don't lust for a worldly greatness. Look at verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. And this is the Luke's summary of what Mark spends quite a bit more time talking about. And it's kind of shocking and it's obviously ungodly. The twelve have been with Jesus for three years. They've heard him teach. They've heard him preach on humility, on not seeking greatness, on being lowly. And he's been a perfect example to them. And here they are at almost the very end of their training time. And they're arguing about who is the greatest. In one way, it's encouraging to note that even the disciples that God used to turn the world upside down had a long way to grow. So that's good. He still used them even though they were messed up. So we've got hope for ourselves Because, you know, we're messed up too. Everybody's messed up to one degree or another. And yet God used them. And he changed them. And as you go through the New Testament, you see they became more and more godly. 
And so we know that God's promise is true, that when he begins a work in us, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Remember Paul, when he is recounting what Jesus taught him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Now think about that. That is so twisted to the world's thinking. Weak? Those aren't the people who are great. That's not what you want to be. You want to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Yeah, and the strength of his might, not your might. And here Paul is saying, you know, when I realize my spiritual weakness, when I realize I can't do anything to please God on my own, that I am totally reliant upon God and God alone to get me through and to do ministry and to live for him. When I am just see my utter spiritual poverty, then I know that Christ is going to be strong in me. And you know what? The world does not want that. They they don't like the whole crutch thing. Have you everybody anybody saying, Oh yeah, well Jesus is just a crutch to you? Well yeah, what's gonna hold you up from hell? what's your crutch? I'm telling you. You need one. And that's the whole problem. Proud people don't see they, they need a crutch. You know, God's standard is exactly opposite of The world's standard and those who see themselves as great sinners, as the chief of all sinners, as the dregs of the earth, as unable, as weak. Those are the people who have great thoughts about themselves. And this just goes so contrary to the world, which is, oh man, you're a good person. You are great. You look in the mirror every morning and you say, you are God. And you can be your own whatever. Just think it hard enough and make yourself that. And you would think that a believer, after coming to Christ, after being saved by grace and just being broken by the Spirit, so that, you know, a believer sees their sin, they see their need for Christ, they know they're headed for hell, they know that they deserve to go to hell. They see the gospel, God's spirit helps them understand the gospel, they repent, they believe, their life has changed, and you would think, man, they're never going back there to I'm great again. R. Kent Hughes says Christians often get things totally upside down, and he compares them to the dog and the cat. He says, you know, when a person first comes to Christ, they're like the dog. The dog is pet by his master, and the dog wags its tail and says, my master is God. But the cat, when the master pets the cat, the cat says, I am God. (laughs) Now what's interesting about that, and you all know that's true if you have a cat, What's interesting about that is in order to be saved, you have to be like the dog. There is no way to get saved unless you're like the dog. Unless you see God for who he is and see yourself for who you are. And yet how often and how quickly after being saved and supposedly growing in the Lord do we come become like the cat? And we actually begin to think that we are great because God has given us grace we don't deserve. Now, is that twisted or what? And yet that's, here we are. That's what happens. And so we need to ask ourselves, why do we want to be great? You know, all of us struggle with this. You know, I... I see things, you know, you hear somebody sing who's just an incredible singer. And you think, you know, I wish I could sing like that. Or somebody play an instrument. I wish I could play an instrument like that. Or somebody, you know, do some incredible work of art. I wish I could do that. Or some brainiac who invented some real complex things. But I wish I could do that. And you want to be great like that person's great. Why? Why? 
See, whenever you get down to the cure, you can't administer the cure unless you know the motive. Because motive is everything. Motives are what drive the action. You can have somebody who wants to be godly for a godly reason and somebody who wants to be godly for an ungodly reason. Because of the motive of the heart. You know, you got to finish this sentence. I want to be great because... Why? Why is that? You know, do you want to have the world and the devil fall in love with you? Do you want the, I will be great so people go, well, you're great. You are special. Obviously, you're more important than me. Your life is not a waste. I wish I could be like you. And man, if we could have some other great person say that to us, we've arrived. Because now we're really great because somebody else is great and they know because they're great that they said we're great. And that's great. (laughs) Or maybe you want to be great because you want riches. Maybe you want to be great because you want riches so that you don't have to really trust in God. When it gets down to it, you know, you're tired of scraping by. Because when you scrape a by, you have to keep going to God saying, help me, help me, help me. Day after day and month after month. And you know what? If you were rich, you wouldn't have to trust God. Or maybe you want to influence the world for Christ. And you want to be really godly. You know, a super great preacher or whatever. A writer. Why? Why do you want to do that? Well, you know, doing great things for Christ is great. As long as your motive isn't, well, I'm going to do these great things for Christ. So other people will look at me and say, man, you're great for Christ. Thank you. Thank you. You see, the 12 were special when you think about it. Out of all the people who were alive then, only 12 were chosen to be Jesus' apostles, and they were the 12. That makes them kind of special. Only they were specially trained by Jesus. Only they got to spend all that quality time with Jesus. Only they got to witness some of his greatest miracles, like the calming of the sea. They were the first to receive miraculous powers. And so that made them unique and special and great because of what God did, not because of who they were. The grace of God was great in them, we might say. But you know, who called who? Who called who? Who chose who before the foundation of the world? Who trained who? Who gave who the spiritual gifts? See, that was all God. That, that didn't have anything to do with them. I mean, what if you, after church, you saw two women arguing about who was the most beautiful? <laughs> yes, but look at my nose. Yes, but I didn't have mine operated on. <laughs> well, mine isn't either. But look at my complexion. Oh, yes. Well, obviously you had a you know, choice of your genetics. See, that, that would be idiotic. Because you know what? You had nothing to do with how you look. God gave you your looks. You know, you're at school. You hear one student boasting, oh, yeah, I am a better student than you. I've got, you know, straight A pluses. Okay, so where'd you get your brain from? Where'd you get your family from? That family that supports you to be a good student. How come you aren't in Ethiopia right now sitting on the dirt with a distended belly? Mm. You're sitting at a coffee shop and you overhear someone say, yeah, you know what? I have the most awesome spiritual gifts. I think I'm the best teacher in our whole church. Whoa. Well, that's something to boast about because obviously you did that, right? God is the one who gives us anything we have worth boasting about all comes from who? God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And just to give you a little background here, the Corinthian church was struggling with the sin of kind of a personality cults. There were two major figures here. The apostle Paul, who was no spiritual wimp, 
And a man named Apollos, who is described in Acts as a man mighty in word and deed. So we've got these two hardcore Bible guys. The difference is, is Paul isn't all that eloquent and Apollos is. But Paul is an apostle and Apollos is not. And so both of these men have had some influence now in the Corinthian church. And it's kind of divided the church. Go, I'm of Apollos. He discipled me. I like his preaching better. And some people, I'm of Paul. And you know what? Paul's the one who led me to the Lord. So, and he's an apostle. He writes inspired books. And this is the kind of thing that was going on. The church was being divided between Apollos and Paul. And Apollos and Paul are both on the same side. They are creating this. The people are doing this. So Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 4.1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Paul just says, listen, you know, you want to think a great thought of me? Think of me as a servant, a slave. A servant and a slave that is entrusted with the stewardship. A stewardship that requires faithfulness. Verse 3. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. He goes, listen. You know, you think I'm great or Apollos is great. Listen, we're just servants. We're servants entrusted with the stewardship. And I want you to know something. It doesn't matter what you think of me or anybody else thinks of me or what I think of me. What it matters is what does God think of me? Because his judgment is perfect. Vive. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and each what man's praise will come to him from the Lord. He goes, you know what? You want to find out who's the, the godly guy, whose motives are correct. It's not going to be looking on their outside. There's only one person who sees into men's hearts, and that person is God. So just chill out, wait till judgment day, and then we'll find out who's really great. Verse 6, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what was written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? There's three questions here at the end. The first here is, for who regards you as superior? And the implied answer is, since he's just argued for it, the only person that matters is who? God. So does God tell you that you're superior? I don't think so. And then he says, and if, and what do you have that you did not receive? And the implied answer is, nothing. Oh. And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as if you had not received it? Oh. Huh. That is interesting. You know, you're poor, you're dirt poor, some distant relative dies and leaves you a fortune. You, you, you walk around and go, look at this fortune that I have gained by my own power. <laughs> oh no, that was given to you, pal. And you're a bad steward of it. God is the one who gives us all the things that really make us great in his eyes. And you know what? God is doing some great things here at Calvary Bible Church. He's raised up some great people with some great gifts. People are coming to the Lord. People growing in the Lord. We have some great programs. A lot of great things. But listen, all of that is given to us by the Lord and not because we deserve it. Not because we deserve it. Not because we're good. It's because he's good. And so let us not boast and think ourselves great because we have received that which we don't deserve. The world takes what it receives by God's grace and then it boasts as if it had not received it from God. 
Have you ever seen an athlete say something like this? I am the greatest. When really that athlete is the athlete that they are because there was this person who knit them together in their mother's womb. You know, our church is better than your church. Oh, is this by your works? By your fleshly deeds? Well, no, by the grace of God. Well, isn't grace undeserved? Well, yeah, and unearned? Yeah, and doesn't God give it to who he wants? Yeah, not for any reason than because of his own free will? Well, yeah. Oh, then be quiet. Because you don't have anything to boast for. You can't boast in something that someone else did unless you give that person the credit. That's fine. Boast in the Lord. So you need to check out the motives of your heart. You know, we sing all sorts of songs, you know, all glory, laud, and honor to the Redeemer King. But the question is, are we living it? Are we living that way? The psalmist said in Psalm 34, verses 2 and 3, My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That is what we are to be doing. Exalting his name together. Jeremiah the prophet says this in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is kind of interesting because this kind of seems like a contradiction. But listen, he says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. And that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Delight in one thing. He delights in those who boast that they have come to know the Lord. And how does that happen? By works? It always happens by what? Grace. It's the only way it's ever happened. No one's ever worked their way into salvation. So you want to boast, you can say, God saved me. I ran away. He lassoed me, tripped me up, hogtied me, and drug me back to Jesus. You know, that's how it is. No one comes to the son unless the father draws him, pulls him against his will, really. Jesus says in John 6. And so... You can boast in the grace of God. You can boast in God and his goodness and what he's doing. That's fine. But don't take what happens by God's grace in your life or in this church and take that credit upon yourself. That is ungodly greatness. So what is the cure? The cure is, second point, seek godly greatness. Look at verse 47. But Jesus knowing... What they were thinking in their heart. And just stop there for a second. You know, this is uh, one of those great passages that really tempts me to preach a whole sermon. But just think about this. Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts. Now, how many people fit into that category of people who can read other people's minds? One, God is the only one, the only one. And you know what? It's a good thing that only God knows what we are thinking, because if we could ever know what somebody was thinking, we would hate him in a minute. I mean, just think about this. You ever think about this? You know, you see uh, Star Trek and they have, what, Betazoids on there who can read people's minds? I thought, sure. They'd be offended in a minute. Yeah, imagine just coming into church here and you sit down in the pew and God just, and all of a sudden you can read the mind of the person next to you, that stranger. Think about that. You kind of look over and go, man, what an ugly dress. (laughs) I mean, you don't say it. But you think it. And they're eavesdropping in on your thoughts. And they think, well, you're no prize yourself, pal. (laughs) And pretty soon, 
your mental war escalates into this mental screaming match. And you know what? There's nowhere to go. You cannot hide. You can't pout. Every negative thought you think they're going, oh, 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 oh. And you're going, oh, 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 I didn't know women thought thoughts like that. They, they, they've got everything, man. They're, you're just, I mean, you're just laid open. And they're laid open to you. And you're just like, oh, oh, oh. And you know, you just see each other's black, dark hearts and your black, dark thoughts. And you're just shocked and you run away from each other but you can't get away because you hear them running away oh what a wicked person and you're thinking whoa what a wicked person and they're thinking oh yeah oh yeah yeah you just can't get away we are what proverbs 26 verses 23 and 25 says we are like like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross a burning lips and a wicked heart. The picture here is you've got this old cheap mud pot. And then you get a little bit of silver sludge and put it on the outside. So it looks silver, but it's dirt. He goes on to say, he who hates disguises it with his lips. But he lays up deceit in his heart. Oh, nice dress. That's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. Oh, good day. Hope you drop dead. (laughs) You know, he disguises it with his lips. Verse 25, when he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Hi, I would like to give you a good deal. I really want to scam you. Um, You know, people that way were wicked. We're wicked. Think about somebody knowing you're pouting, knowing your thoughts, knowing your lustings after them or other people, or just, I mean, just, whoa, it would be so scary. We'd probably stop and go, they're just like me. And you know what? God sees all of your thoughts all the time. That is scary. Because God can do something about it big time. He can see your thoughts all the time, 24 hours a day. He taps in and watches all your vain imaginations as your heart runs riot over the whole spectrum of wickedness. And Jesus knew what they were thinking, which means he knew all their evil thoughts and he knew all that stuff. So whenever he asked them, what were you talking about? He knew. He knew that and he knew a lot more than that. He knew all their little angers and murderous thoughts towards one another along the way because of their bickering. And to me, this is one of the great arguments for God being our all powerful for who but an all powerful God could endure to tap in to the corrupt brains of all mankind and listen to that all the time. Especially a just and holy God who would be just in stomping us into dust because of our sin, and yet he holds back, and that is omnipotence. Now look at verse 47. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a child and stood him by his side, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Now what do you suppose that Jesus meant when he said, receives this child in my name. I mean, what does he mean by that? Do you just, um, is he saying we should all go out and find this boy, this child, and that child only. I mean, he's grown up now, or maybe we dig up his body and we find him. No, he couldn't mean that. Do you think he means just find any little person and receive him? That's what God wants us to do. Just go find a kid. Get involved in the children's ministry. I think that's Brock's interpretation. (laughs) Or children hear a picture of something. Yes, that's the correct answer. When Jesus refers to children, he usually is speaking of those who are helpless and weak and humble and trusting. That's what children are like. Jesus, speaking of believers, in a prayer to the Father, turn over to Luke chapter 10, verse 21. 
where he says at this very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Now, who are these infants he's talking about? Well, if you look down at verse 23, turning disciples, he said privately, blessed are your eyes which see the things you see, for I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them and to hear the things that you hear and did not hear them. Who are the infants? The disciples. Infants? I mean, little babies. He uses the term there. They're little babies. How could these grown men, this big burly fisherman, be little babies? Well, in a spiritual sense... That's what they were. They're children of God because you have to become trusting, humble, broken, and weak in order to receive Jesus. And if you don't receive Jesus in that way, you don't receive him. Because those who come to him must be that way. Turn over to chapter 17 of Luke. Let's give you a couple examples here how he uses this Luke chapter 17 verses 1 and 2 and he said to his disciples it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come but woe to him through whom they come it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble Jesus talking about infants and babies here Little kids? No, he's talking about believers to cause one of God's little ones, God's children, believers to stumble. Turn over to chapter 18, verse 15. Eighteen fifteen. Jesus says, and they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. Well, when his disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. Now, here are little babies, little infants, young children. They're being brought to Jesus kind of as dedication time, you know, that Jesus seems to be a great prophet. Would you mind blessing them? That's what's going on here. So they're literal, literal children here. Well, look at verse 16, though. The Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now notice he doesn't say it belongs to these, but such as these, this is a simile to those who are similar to these. Verse 17, for truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, simile, in a childlike way, will not enter it at all. This is the common way that Jesus refers to children. Believers are like children in that when God's grace comes upon them, they see themselves as sinful, as weak, as unable to save themselves, and they trust completely in Jesus to save them. That makes them a child of God. It makes them one of his little ones. And so that's the only kind of person that comes to Christ. You must become like a humble, trusting child. Now go back to our text. So Jesus says, if you receive one of these little ones, these believers in my name. Now what is that? It means to invoke the name of Jesus. To to say, I'm doing this in Jesus' name. I'm giving him the credit, the glory for what's happening here. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 18, verses 2 through 5, we read, And he called a child to himself, set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Speaking of those who have been converted from adulthood, trusting in themselves, to childhood, trusting in Christ. The operative term, humble themselves, that's what it means to come to Jesus. The Matthew's account is crystal clear about what Jesus is saying. Now look at the middle of verse 48. 
And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. And notice the divine commission here that, that is alluded to that says, Jesus was sent. Who receives me, receives him who sent me. That Jesus was sent by somebody else, the Father, to come into the world, to live that life and die for sinners. And the sequence is pretty simple. If you receive a spiritually helpless, weak, trusting in Jesus person, i.e. a Christian, you are receiving Jesus. Because they are his children, he dwells within them. This is exactly what we see in the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, verses 34 through 40, where Jesus says to the sheep, the believers who are on his right, then the king will say to those in his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger to you and you invited me in and naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So, all these texts talk about Christians loving other Christians. Jesus says, the world will know that you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. And love is service, self-sacrifice for one another. Look at the end of verse 48, back in Luke 9. For the one who is least among you, this is the one who is great. Now, what is Jesus saying here? You got to be poor. You've got to be physically ill. You've got to be short. You got to be young. You know what I mean? Well, what is he after here? Well, let's just say you, you know, were someplace, I don't know, McDonald's ran into a billionaire. And you started talking to him. You decided to have lunch together and... You didn't know the guy was rich, but you share the gospel and the guy just totally breaks down, gives his life to Christ, repents and believes. Now the guy's a billionaire. He owns property. He owns companies. He's got employees. He's got money. He is rich. He's famous and he's powerful. But I'll tell you this, spiritually speaking, he has been converted He is now a child before God because he sees himself as a sinner who is unable to save himself. He has humbled himself and he has trusted in Jesus to save him. And so even though on the outside, yes, he is a great rich man. And yes, he has a lot of power in the world's eyes. Now he begins to have true spiritual greatness. Why? Because he has become the least And has entered into the kingdom of God. Jesus is talking about that. Don't think he's talking about a bunch of physical things. Because sometimes we, you know, when we have a lot, we we think that our riches somehow make us spiritually more important. You remember the church of Laodicea? It's kind of like the church of Beverly Hills. And in Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says this. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. This is their attitude. Listen, you know, Laodicea is an affluent place. We live in nice houses here and we're rich. And, you know, God, we don't really need anything from you because we've got it squared away. Now, of course, they're overlooking the fact that all that they had was given to them by God. Jesus goes on to say, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, obviously, they're not that way physically. They're that way what? Spiritually. You know what? Everybody is. Everybody's that way. We're all 
born that way and we stay that way until we come to Christ. There's the only difference is some realize it and get saved and some don't and never get saved. So Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed in the and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And of course, Jesus is the one who's offering all of those things to them. Physically, they were rich and powerful and respected in the community and the world. And yet spiritually, they were blind, wretched and naked because they hadn't become humble. Trusting in Jesus, servants. Mark 9.35, the parallel text to ours says, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be the last of all and servant of all. You know, what is amazing is that here in our text, Jesus hits this pretty hard in Luke. But he does it again in Luke 14.11, after the disciples um, decide to all grab for places of honor at a dinner. He sees them all jockeying for position for the head of the table. The disciples. So he has to tell them a parable to try and teach them about humility. And then four chapters later in Luke 18, 14, Jesus tells another parable of the Pharisee and the publican against those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt because they were great spiritual giants and others weren't. And the punchline of both parables is directed at those seeking greatness. And it's this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, you exalt yourself now in this world. You think you're something great in this world. Now I'm telling you later on, you're going to be low, 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 below the flames. But if you see yourself as low in this world and humble yourself in this world and trust God in this world and the life to come, God will exalt you. And people, this is two more times after our text. And you would think, okay, chapter 9, they got it. Chapter 14, they got it. Chapter 18, they got it. So by chapter 22, they've graduated. Let's look there. This is in the upper room discourse. This is the Passover. Jesus is going to die. I mean, he's on the threshold of being betrayed. Luke twenty-two twenty-four, And there arose also a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be greatest. <laughs> and they're still... arguing about who's great. And he said to them, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? And they're all going, yeah, of course it is. Man, the great guy is the one that everybody's waiting on him hand and foot. And Jesus goes, but I'm the one who's serving you. Oh. You see, they just couldn't get it. We get so much wrong, opposite, negative, worldly input from the world about what it means to be great that we just kind of don't get it. And man, they got pounded at it. Now, when you look at all these texts... I just distilled it down into four false motivations for being great. Here they are. One, when you are great, you don't have to trust Jesus completely or even at all. That's false. Everybody needs to. Or they don't get to heaven. Secondly, when you are great, you don't have to humble yourself. Why? You're great. Three, when you are great, you don't have to associate with lowly people. You just associate with other great people, other rich people, other famous people. You know, when do you see in the tabloids the pictures of, you know, movie stars hanging out with people like us? No second, oh man, 
Get out of here. My bodyguard will kill you. Four, when you are great, you don't have to serve others, but they serve you. And that's what the world thinks is great. You don't have to wait in line. You pay your way, get the best seats, the best attention. You buy everything you want. Everybody serves you. You're the center of attention. You get accolades. People want your signature. You've got everything. You're great. Well, for a little tiny bit, you might be. But those who are proud and think they're too good, even in the church, to serve or get involved or... They have a problem. They're thinking, you know, my time is too valuable for Jesus. My resources are too valuable for Jesus. You know, I can't be obeying Jesus in this area. I mean, I'm, I'm me. Those people don't get to heaven. Third, don't be jealous of others who aren't serving Christ. Look at verse 49. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. Now, apparently someone was having success casting demons out in the name of Jesus, even though they were not following Jesus and the disciples around the countryside. Imagine that. And of course, you remember what happened the last time the disciples tried to cast out a demon. They failed big time. And so here... The spiritually elite, the called, the trained, and the divinely bestowed disciples who couldn't cast the last demon out that they tried are watching some guy who they don't even know, who is even following with him, and that guy's doing it. And what do you think they're thinking? Hey, what's going on? That's our job. Hey, 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 cut it out. We're the the disciples. Jesus gave us the authority to cast out demons, not you. Well, why is it working then? Well, we don't know, but we want you to quit. Because you aren't even following Jesus. Oh, do you have to follow Jesus in order to cast out demons in his name? Well, I think so. You better quit. And see, they don't, they're inventing laws now. Jesus never said, thou shalt follow me to cast out a demon. But see, now they're kind of jealous and they're envious because this guy, who they don't even know is having success, and they aren't. So Jesus says, look at verse 50, Jesus answered and said to them, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Mark includes some interesting comments where Jesus basically says, listen, there's going to come a time when nobody's going to be able to do any sort of miracle unless they're a true believer. But right now, leave them alone, which implies that during this time before Jesus's death, anybody who invoked the name of Jesus could do certain things. Jesus wanted press from everybody. So as long as they invoked his name and gave him credit, The guy was able to do the miracle. But the point that Jesus is making is this. Listen, you're either for evil or you're against evil. And if you're against evil, you're for Jesus because he's against evil. That's all he's saying. Listen, he's saying, he who is not against you is for you. And this guy wasn't saying Jesus is a false teacher or the disciples are wrong. He wasn't bashing them. He wasn't doing anything. The only thing he was doing is opposing demons. And Jesus says, what do you, stop it. Let the guy alone. Cicero speaking to Caesar in 46 BC captured the same thought when he said this, quote, though we held to all, held all to be our opponents, but those on our side... You counted all as your adherents who are not against you. That's kind of like the half empty, half full perspective. Where some people, when they become spiritually elite, look at other people and think, you know what? They're half empty. Instead of man, they're getting there. They're half full. It's just an attitude thing. 
And so we need to be careful that we don't judge others because, you know, and have this intolerance because they aren't doing things, certain things we're doing. Now, I'm not saying that we need to tolerate sin or accept false doctrine. The Bible is clear about that, that we are to refute those who contradict. We are to expose the truth. We are to correct those in error. I mean, that is crystal clear. But when it comes to Christian liberty, music styles, um, you know, worship service format, dress, hairstyles, and again, modesty. What is that? Does anybody know that? You know, that would be a great thing to just have the perfect standard of modesty. And what is that? A black cloak <laughs> reaching to the ground with two slits in the eyes? I mean, well, what is that? You know, the Bible doesn't say. It just says modesty. Be modest. So what is that? I'm sure the way some of us are dressed now, if we would go back in time, they would just, people would scream prostitute because you don't have a shawl on or whatever that reaches the ground you see we have these standards and when when there's liberty when it's personal conviction then we need to cut other people slack you know hey we preach for an hour here most of the time close to it and some churches you go there and you they hear the 20 minute wonder and you can think to yourself, man, that church is, I got it all wrong. Well, maybe six months ago, they were only preaching 10. <laughs> They're doing twice as good as they were. And so we need to be careful not to look down on other people because of things that they do differently, but which don't fall outside the realm of biblical command and sound doctrine. Hughes in his commentary on Luke says, quote, It has a telltale aroma and others can smell it, especially those outside the church. Sometimes it is an acrid air of condescension or subtle smiling hostility or aloofness or clubbish excluvis. Ex- yeah, that's right. <laughs> I couldn't say it the first service either. Excluvicity. Or doubt about God's blessing on all who are not in the approved circle. This stench has kept multitudes away from the church and more important, the knowledge of Christ, end quote. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of like, we're sorry about you. Too bad you go to that church. And so let us be careful to encourage those other churches. You know, if God's given us resources, then let's use those resources to help other churches who want some help. And if they don't want help, then let's pray for them. It's true that Jesus' words do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you, have been used by those who want to promote what is called ecumenicalism. And I'm sorry about the big jargon. If you don't know what that means, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Ecumenicalism is kind of like this. You know, as long as you call yourself a Christian, let's just set aside all doctrinal standards and get together, pool our resources to fight the ills of society. You know, fight world poverty and fight abortion and, you know, just kind of just get together and just not talk about doctrine and not talk about sin and just don't be bothered by our homosexual pastor and don't be bothered by, you know, the fact that, you know, we let people live together and we don't deal with it. And, and don't be bothered by the fact that we deny the resurrection. No, that's not what it's talking about. <laughs> uh, that's not what he's talking about. He, he's just saying Listen, if you've got somebody that's doing good and and they're not against the truth, then don't bother them just because they do something in a different way. But we know he's not saying accept them in their error because there are a lot of commands in the Bible that say refute those who contradict, expose those who are in error. You know, it, it just lots of commands about battling for the truth and guarding the truth and giving a defense. Turn to Luke chapter 11, verse 17. 
Here Jesus is defending himself against false accusations by the religious leaders who are jealous and envious and scared and whatever. And so because they can't do what Jesus is doing, Jesus is telling them, listen, I'm not doing this by Satan's power. If Satan was against himself, his kingdom would fall. And so if I'm casting out demons fighting against Satan by the power of Satan, then that means Satan is fighting against Satan. And that doesn't make any sense. And then he says this in verse 23. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, how does that reconcile with he who is not against you is for you, even though he's not with you? Those are two antithetical statements. They are antithetical. Well, when you see things like this, we know that what's king? The context. Context is king. And in our text, Jesus is just saying all these people are doing is opposing demons. And that's fine. They aren't against us. They aren't overthrowing our truth. They aren't trying to say what I'm teaching is wrong. They aren't promoting error. They're just casting out demons in my name. Fine. In this other text, Jesus is being opposed by those who hate him and therefore hate the truth, hate the Father. And Jesus says, if you don't gather to me, you will be scattered. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, just one more example here. In Ephesians chapter 4, This is another text that those who want to promote kind of just unity at all costs will go to. They like to go in verse 1 where Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. And they say, Aha! There you are! Tolerance! You accept me and my aberrant view. I will accept you and your aberrant view. Even though we're antithetical in the ways we believe you go to heaven, different gospels, different standards, different beliefs about the Bible, all that stuff is different. It's okay. We need to tolerate one another. But you know what? That's not what that's saying. Because you need to read a couple more verses. Look at verse 4. Paul goes on to say, There is one body of Christ. Now, that's pretty exclusive, isn't it? One is the loneliest number. I think Lennon said that. And there is one spirit. Just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. There's only one hope of salvation. There is one Lord. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. One faith, that is one body of doctrine. One baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now that is about as dogmatically narrow as you can get. You fit into that, be tolerant. If you don't believe that, you're outside the faith. So Jesus and Paul are not advocating a free-for-all of let's get together and just ignore doctrine. Doctrine is what we are to be unified on. The truth. We are unified by the truth of the gospel. Not the rejection of the gospel in order to do some sort of social good. All right, what have we learned this morning? One, don't seek worldly greatness. Why? For all those reasons we looked at, but basically because the only thing you have worth boasting of is something God has given you. And if God hasn't given it to you, you've conjured it up by your own wicked heart, then it's not worth boasting about. Secondly, seek heavenly greatness, which is to become like a child, trust God completely, live for him and serve others. And three, don't be jealous of others who are doing ministry differently. As long as they feel within the the pale of truth and sound doctrine to, you know, so they have a different style of music or so they wear different clothes or, you know, they're more casual or they wear tuxedos every Sunday. I don't know. (laughs) You know, just fine. You know, that doesn't make them ungodly because they're doing something. Rejoice in that. Encourage that. Say, way to go, brother. Way to go, sister. Get them. 
About 300 AD, a wealthy Christian couple in Cappadocia gave birth to a boy named Basil. They sent him to the finest schools in Constantinople and Athens. Basil graduated with honors. He was proud of himself and dreamed of being great, a great public figure. And he told his sister. But his sister, who had led him to faith in Christ, counseled humility. Said, you need to be humble. And she said, it is better to be faithful before God than famous before men. And he thought about that. And so Basil, with his great intellect and his great wealth, labored diligently all his life to set up orphanages, hospitals, places to help the needy. He served people. He labored until he basically killed himself at age 50, serving other people. You know what he's called today? Basil the Great. Basil the Great. And you know, when we live our life here on earth and we're serving people and serving people and serving people and all the important people in the world just kind of look over our heads. They don't even notice who we are. They don't even know who we are. We're just religious fanatics, Bible thumpers. Just remember Not too long from now, there's going to be the great reversal. And those who are on the top in this world, most of them will be in the lowest dungeon of hell. And those who we think are, oh, that poor old woman is going to be on Jesus's right hand. And the disciples are going to go, who's that old woman up there? Oh, that's the prophetess Anna who served in the temple day and night with prayers and fasting for 46 years, never leaving. Oh, a great person because they saw themselves as lowly and because they served others diligently. So let's be known for that and not for spiritual eliteness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we learned in this text. And Father, I just pray that you would help all of us to trust you, to rely on your grace, to live out this text. Father, we certainly need to improve in this area. I know I do. I just pray that you would humble us all and help us to trust in you and help us to use the great grace that you've given us, not as a means of boasting but in ourselves, but in you. And Father, that we might use those means to bless other people. Father, help us to do that for your glory, for your honor and your praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.